0: Welcome to Healing 101, the mini bite-sized episodes that are bursting full of information from leading experts and doctors who are here to help us understand difficult topics and teach us about the various ways we might be able to improve our mental health. The point of these episodes is to educate you about different mental health disorders and therapies that you may never have heard of before, because ultimately, the more people know, the more people we can help on their healing journeys. In this captivating Healing 101 episode, we explore the world of mental health from a groundbreaking perspective. Our guest, Dr. Camilla Nord, investigator scientist at the MRC Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit and author of The Balanced Brain, The Science of Mental Health, challenges conventional notions by proposing that mental health is driven entirely by biological mechanisms. We delve into the profound implications of this concept, discussing how it can reshape our understanding of mental health disorders and the future of their treatment. The conversation doesn't stop there, however. Dr Nord also sheds light on some of the most perplexing mysteries in the field of mental health, addressing the aspects that science is still struggling to comprehend. We delve into the importance of a personalised approach to mental health treatment, respecting the unique needs and experiences of each individual. Additionally, we explore the intricate topic of addiction, as Dr. Nord explains why certain individuals may be more susceptible to addictive behaviours, and why our brains sometimes seek acute, temporary stresses to induce moments of pleasure. Join us for a thought-provoking and insightful episode that has the potential to transform the way we perceive and address mental health and addiction. So we commonly misperceive mental health, I think, as being all in the mind and physical pain in the body, typically it's that sort of Descartesian view. But your research presents a new way of thinking about mental health. So can you explain it to our listeners in a bit more detail?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, we're all, not just scientists, not just medics, we're all obsessed with this kind of duality of mind and brain or mind and body. We we like that because it's intuitive it kind of reflects our our inner experience that we have perhaps something unique about our mental states versus these underlying biological mechanisms that we don't have access to they're too mysterious to feel like they're ours in a sense but i suppose my book is really about how even things that seem so unquantifiable so difficult so human and experiential things like mental health can in fact be driven really entirely by biological mechanisms. And I think those mechanisms are in the brain, but also in the wider nervous system in the body. And that together, they
0: kind of pattern and shape our experience of mental health. Yeah, and I think as mental health sort of advances are made, it it is so interesting. And and particularly, I think a focus, particularly for the last couple of years, has been the relationship between the, the vagus nerve and the gut and the brain axis Um, But I think, as you say, so much of it goes on in our nervous system, and we really don't know that much about it yet.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, there's a level on which we don't know what our neurotransmitters are doing. We don't know what our individual little cells are doing. But we also have this intuition about what is driving our positive experiences of mental health, what maybe has contributed to our negative experiences of mental health. And, and some of that intuition, I, I don't want to say it's all wrong. Some of it may well reveal kind of important wider drivers, but then there, it's all operating through this machinery, through this common machinery in our brains and bodies. And I wanted to really write a book about those processes, those mechanisms. You know, how could something like stress cause poor mental health? Well, because it changes things in the brain and things in the body that shape our mental health.
0: Exactly. And that's why I think doing different physiological things can often have implications for our mental health. And I I mean, as listeners know, I for one am someone who really struggles with my food and exercise. And actually for so many years, I didn't really understand the implications of over-exercising on my nervous system and therefore on my mental health and you know increasing your cortisol levels putting strain on your adrenal glands all those biological factors that you just dismiss as playing really a role and and you think as you said that mind-body separation is just so apparent that you are really using your body to serve your mind and there's sort of no connection but as we get more awareness I think it will really really help people such as myself understand what behaviors are actually exacerbating their mental health issues.
1: I agree. And it's so interesting that you use over exercise as an example because often when you look at kind of the way, you know, popular conceptions about the relationship between exercise and mental health is that you should do more. And that is true for some people, particularly people who don't do any exercise at a population level. It's a bit better to do some exercise for your mental health. It's associated with better mental health. And this seems to be independent of just having better mental health in the first place. But actually, the very same studies show that if you're already exercising quite a lot, perhaps exercising more might not be the best idea because there's also an impact, a worsening of mental health in people who exercise quite a lot, who do vigorous exercise, say,
0: more than four or five times a week. And what do you believe that some of the things that science really is still fundamentally misunderstanding about mental health? Well, one of my real
1: priorities with this book is to get across what we call individual differences in what worsens or improves mental health. Because too often you see a headline, X, Y, or Z improves mental health. X, Y, or Z makes your mental health worse. And that really doesn't reflect the picture often for any individual because who among us is totally average – There are ways in which, you know, these population level studies can tell us really important health consequences, like, you know, for a large group of people. But for you as an individual, what you need to understand is that mental health can be driven by so many different factors that X, Y, or Z might very well work, not for you, for you, in the opposite direction, all these complex relationships. And I want my book to really help people Better interpret when they hear that something is good or bad for their mental health. Better interpret what that might mean for them as an individual.
0: Yeah, no, and I really couldn't agree more. And I think this sort of bespoke, tailored approach to mental health is so essential because I think in the past, particularly my experience of going into treatment for, say, my eating disorder, where everyone is treated in the same way—you go to group therapy, you have to eat the same—and it's just this very generic approach taken to people who are wired in completely individual ways and it just doesn't work and it's shown time and time again that it doesn't work and and also you talk a lot about depression and with ECT and you know it works for some people it doesn't work for other people so why does it not because I think a lot of the time people who don't respond to typical approaches or methods for example I never responded to CBT which is meant to be a really great treatment for OCD. Well, for years, I felt like a complete failure. I couldn't understand why it wasn't working. I couldn't understand why my brain worked differently. And and I was slightly blamed. And the system really made me feel like I was the error. I was the pariah and the anomaly. It wasn't to do with maybe searching for a different cure. And I think so often that's where we go wrong.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm so sorry to hear about that experience because something like CBT, it is a very effective intervention for in the case of depression about 50 to 60% of people that means you're left with an enormous number of people for whom it is not the right intervention and those people are just as important just as valid it's certainly not their fault that it doesn't work for them in fact more and more we think that there might be a better way of matching people to treatments than just a diagnostic group. This is kind of one of my perhaps strongest future hopes for my lab and people working in the field like me, is that we find a better way of identifying what treatment will work for someone than just this kind of category. If you have an eating disorder, you should have this treatment. Maybe there's a way we can measure what's happening in their brain, what's happening with their behavior, and map that onto what they
0: should receive as an intervention. I mean, that sounds incredible. So how would you start by doing that? So I think one way we need to
1: start is by diving deeper into what we should be measuring about someone experiencing mental health problems. At the moment, clinically, what we measure is kind of subjective perceptions, symptoms. Symptoms are important. Symptoms are really important. We shouldn't disregard them. But there might be other factors that would give us closer access to the processes driving those symptoms. So let's Take an example of changes in your reward processing. The symptoms that you would experience might be something like, I used to find eating enjoyable. I've lost all enjoyment from it, and that's really affected my mental health okay, well, what has driven that particular change? It may be changes in particular dopamine circuitry in the brain. It may be changes in ongoing physiological processes in your body or how your brain interprets those body signals. So it's a way of getting at that characterization of someone's experience, but at a deeper level where maybe that will map better onto what we know about what the treatment is affecting because the treatment can't directly affect your experience. It's affecting some underlying process. So mapping process onto process.
0: Yeah. And and I think that's why you said having a personalized approach to treatment is just so crucial. And why have we spent years basically prescribing generic treatments for so many people?
1: Yeah, I think the reason that we have is because that's what's easiest to do and most efficient. And perhaps it's the best first step, but we need to gradually, but certainly move towards this personalized framework. And in the immediate term, that might be as, you know, as an individual not giving up on yourself if something doesn't work, pursuing other treatment strategies, knowing it doesn't mean your symptoms are untreatable. It just means you're in a large group of people who don't respond to the first thing they tried. And then for people like me, you know, our job as scientists is to really fill in missing pieces of the puzzle to move us towards a future where it will be easier to match people onto treatments than it is at the moment.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I think that will give comfort to so many listeners who, like myself, have been so misguided and misdirected for years and, and, and feeling like I do sometimes. I'm like, why do I not respond more effectively to all this stuff? You know, why is my brain taking so long to change? Why is my brain not so plastic? And, and you know, one can spend years working at it and the changes are very incremental. And, and sometimes one does get frustrated and feel like a scientific intervention and answers are needed. Yeah.
1: But, but do you ever feel that, you know, there's a, an underlying issue there, which is that when we're given a different kind of treatment, let's say, um, you know, I've had many first line antibiotics that don't work. And then you go back to your GP and you say, look, I'm really sorry, but that generic antibiotic you gave me for tonsillitis, it didn't actually work on my tonsillitis. You never actually feel at fault. You might feel frustrated or ill or annoyed, but you never think, oh, my tonsils, there's something, you know, particularly bad about my tonsils that makes them untreatable because we don't have that kind of personal ownership, personal responsibility for our physical health the way that we sometimes feel we should for our mental health. I think that comes from a misconception as well, this idea that our mental health problems are more our fault, more changeable for us. That's incorrect. They're not just because they can be changed by interventions, so can physical health problems. You know, both can be changed, but the kind of mere circumstance of them doesn't mean that they're your fault. But another thing, you know, that I feel very, very sincerely is that there isn't a sort of category of people's brains who have mental health disorders and people's brains who are somehow healthy Everyone's brains have these kind of same processes, and someone with a mental health condition actually has so many ongoing resilience processes in their brain, protecting them from some symptoms, perhaps helping them get out of a depressed episode, perhaps helping them, you know, experience some difficulties, but not others. So we all actually have these ongoing systems supporting our mental health. Even when we're in periods of poor mental health, there are things that our brain is doing behind the scenes, helping us keep going,
0: helping us, you know, maintain hope as much as we can. So I'd love to move on because I know that you've, you've done so much phenomenal work, but you did this incredible study back in February 19, which shined the light on the question of who gets addicted to drugs and spoke a lot about impulsivity. So I'd love to hear about why some of us are more susceptible to addiction than others and are just wired to be more impulsive.
1: Yeah, I was, you know, very lucky to be training at the time in a lab with a scientist who knows so much. She's a neuropsychiatrist and also a neuroscientist, uh, Professor Valerie Voon. And she's a, a world expert on addiction and the common vulnerability factors that could lead to addiction, but also other disorders that involve common disruptions. So what the paper you're referring to did is it, it quantified structural changes, changes at the level of cells in the brain in a particular region called the putamen that we know is very involved in addiction and related disorders. And it showed that these occur much earlier on than we expected. So this is in teenagehood and they relate to someone's levels of impulsivity. So this is not necessarily whether someone has addictive behaviors like with a specific substance, it's actually whether just in general, it's an assessment of how impulsive they are. It's a computer game that they play and we can measure how much you respond before you're supposed to. So what's so interesting there is that it is a kind of structural change in the brain that may predispose people to addiction later on. And I say may because of course, these are associations just like saying, you know, a treatment works for everyone. This isn't the case for everyone either, but it could be a kind of underlying explanation for why some people are more vulnerable to addiction than others, and also why it often goes hand in hand with other vulnerabilities. So it might not just be addiction that these changes could predispose you for, but also other kinds of we think of them as kind of addictive compulsive behaviors, such as binge eating, for
0: example. Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. Would you mind talking to us also about the relationship between pleasure and pain, which you've labelled as stress-induced analgesia? you say that a behavior can be strongly linked with addiction. So why do we seek acute temporary stresses to induce pleasure? So I started my book with a discussion
1: of pleasure because I thought that's what people expect when they hear about mental health. They expect a discussion of what we directly think makes us happy. But I also started with a discussion of pain because I think understanding the roots of pain, particularly chronic pain, is quite significant in understanding why even a very physical experience could be generated by sort of mental phenomena, psychological phenomena, ongoing processes in the brain. So there are kind of two things at play there that I'll, I'll jump into. The pleasure aspect, I focused a little bit on this very interesting phenomenon called stress-induced analgesia which means under certain stressful conditions, you have a depression of your pain responses. In animals, for example, if you put them in a cold water bath, uncomfortably cold, but not like horrifically cold, afterward, they don't respond to the same level to painful responses. So it's a kind of temporary pain relief, like an analgesic drug. In humans, you see the same effect even in kind of much more abstractly stressful experiences. So one of the wildest studies I discussed was in skydivers, where after skydiving, there's a suppression of pain responses. So humans pursue these kind of minor stressful experiences because of the kind of biological pleasurable response that they can induce, in part, that's one reason. I think this is quite important when it comes to thinking about sources of mental health, Because it shows that even things that are fun, behavioral, et cetera, it's all kind of mediated by the same underlying biological processes as much bigger shifts in your mental health. And so one example I gave in terms of analgesia is that you can access this stress-induced analgesia, the way it works is with the release of opioid chemicals in the brain. They're called endogenous opioids exist naturally in the brain. Another way to access the same system is with opioid drugs. So drugs that affect the opioid system, which have obviously been incredibly important in the past few years when you think about the opioid misuse, particularly in the United States, from painkillers. And then another way to access the same system, I mean, there are many, is with social things, like laughing with friends also seems to cause this opioid release and pain inhibition. So we're talking about all these radically different things, but one of which is addictive drugs targeting
0: this pleasure system. And do you think some people are more susceptible to going to the extremes on that pleasure-pain pendulum? I think there are big differences in how much pleasure you
1: get from both stressful experiences and other ways of accessing the opioid system. So there are physical differences in things like how many opioid receptors do you have? How much does this release affect your receptors? So there are kind of physiological reasons that might make you more or less vulnerable to these experiences, and that could shape your behavior later on it might make you like certain experiences more than others like certain drugs more than others find it more difficult to stop taking drugs than others and there are other brain systems involved as well
0: yeah it's just interesting why there's a sort of combination of nature and nurture as to why some people take this pleasure pain access to the extreme and, and it might as you say have to do with the number of opioid receptors in the brain it might also have to do with childhood trauma, it, like all sorts of things play a role as is why, well, I think it explains why mental health is so complicated because there are so many different systems that contribute towards it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and one thing I want to get across is that although my book is about biology in a sense, it's actually also very, very much about social factors and what really constitutes the mind. It's just that All of those factors happen via biological processes. So childhood trauma is affecting your mental health because of its changes to various biological systems.
0: Yeah, and that's why it's so fascinating as to chart that connection. And actually, as you write about, it's the effect that it has on our, our nervous system. And we go into that fight or flight mode when certain triggers occur and when the brain is wired in a way to predict a certain outcome, if a certain trigger takes place, It's fascinating how the brain just gets used to things very, very quickly. And that's where the neuroplasticity can be so crucial, I think, in in recovery and, and getting well from a mental health issue.
1: Yeah, I agree. You know, the very same paths that could kind of lead to an episode of poor mental health, those are the same processes that could be useful in getting out of those periods. And learning is a great example, our kind of brain's ability to learn about our experiences and predict what's coming Next, of course, sometimes, you know, profoundly negative experiences can cause a really distressing mental state because our brain has learned that's what the world is like. And that's a terrible thing to be predicting about the world. But equally, humans have the capacity to re learn everything that we have already learned because our brain is constantly kind of updating its expectations or it can update its expectations. And that can be a real pathway towards recovery.
0: Yeah. As you said, it's a process of relearning and reteaching. And that's where exposure therapy can be so valuable, I think, is that if you keep exposing yourself to something that you th- where you think the outcome is going to be an absolute disaster and you sit through and you tolerate that anxiety and the more you do it, and the more you actually become immune to the anxiety and realize, okay, I'm sitting with it. And like, what's the worst that you can throw at me now? Your brain does start to incrementally rewire, but it is a, it's a long process. And I think that's a frustrating thing, particularly when dealing with, and I use OCD as an example, because typically someone takes 10 years to seek help for OCD, by which time the neural pathways are fairly entrenched. <laughs> so the frustration that comes after two years of therapy and doing exposure work and maybe doing some CBT as well. And you're like, but I'm still suffering with OCT.
1: Yeah, 100%. One thing my lab's really interested in actually is speeding up that kind of therapy process. So, sometimes the worlds of therapy and medication seem like so far apart. They don't talk to each other. You think of like, okay, well, I'll try this drug, but I'll also try this therapy. Maybe different people tell you to do the two things. But actually, I think there could be a much more systematic way of doing that, which is choosing drugs that could augment Therapies. So, for example, we already know that there's a particular drug that can help the effectiveness of exposure therapy, but there might be many more out there. And then you could actually improve maybe the number of people who respond to exposure therapy, but maybe also the speed at which exposure therapy works by just thinking a bit more cleverly about the
0: biology. That's very true, because I think often you see a psychiatrist and they don't necessarily ask what your therapist is doing even. Yeah. Yeah, there's no correspondence and no connection. And I know that you're doing a lot of work in in the realm of TMS and getting that so it's more targeted and working on specific areas of the brain. So would you mind speaking a bit about that?
1: Yeah, you know, I'm very interested in brain stimulation. I've been working on it since my PhD, but I'm by no means an advocate for kind of this is the solution to every mental health problem. I think brain stimulation is one part of the picture that could help possibly possibly some patients who haven't recovered from other treatments so far. And so I I certainly advocate it as, you know, it should be in our arsenal. It's not the one solution. But there are several things that I really like about brain stimulation. One is that you have the ability to kind of directly change regions that we know are disrupted. So maybe it puts us kind of one step closer to things we can measure. Maybe it makes sort of the personalized medicine approach that we mentioned at the beginning a little bit easier. And then the second thing I really like about it is is what we just talked about. It's potential as an augmentative strategy for psychological therapies. So using brain stimulation before during or after a therapy session to essentially help someone engage better with the
0: therapy, learn more from the therapy or the other processes that we know are important in therapy. How soon do you think you'll be able to make it more universally accessible? Because I know at the moment it is, it's not offered in many places. I mean, I've, I've looked into it and it's also very expensive.
1: Yes. So I have been in touch with NHS clinics throughout my career and It has happened perhaps slower than I might've liked, but it is happening that more NHS clinics across the country are offering brain stimulation. And I hope that will continue to be the case. I really appreciate one thing I I love about the NHS so much is how evidence-based it is. It waits For the kind of certainty of evidence that comes with established treatments before delivering them. Other countries take a more experimental route where maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. But if insurance companies are paying for it, you know, it's not your problem as a national regulator, but the NHS doesn't. It really evaluates the efficacy of a treatment before. Recommending it. And I think that's what it's done with brain stimulation. That's what it should have done. And now the evidence base, I think, is convincing enough for TMS for some conditions. And I think the fact that clinics are
0: growing and expanding reflects that it's just happening slowly. How would you encourage people to keep trying? I mean, I know it's easy for me to sit here and and tell listeners and other people, you know, you just don't give up and and keep trying because there will be things out there. And I think. As you've identified, different things work on different regions of the brain, different regions of the body and the nervous system. So it's almost like the more you can do, actually, everything will make some kind of shift. It might not be the the gargantuan epiphany that you want and and the transformative effect that you want, but I think everything has a role, but it's very easy to give up. And I'd like your advice on, on what to say about that.
1: Yeah, that's something I worry about myself with the the main message of my my work, my book, which is that it's a much easier, more digestible message to say, everyone should change this one simple thing about their lives and they'll feel better. And unfortunately, I don't think that's the case. I don't think there is a silver bullet for mental health. I don't think there will be. I just don't think that's how mental health works. And I know that can be... A more challenging message to accept it sounds like a downer but it's also not because I think what we understand about mental health is that so many different things could work that that can kind of help you escape from the self-reinforcing thing that you know the one thing you've been prescribed sertraline sertraline doesn't work for you That's something wrong with you, something wrong with perhaps the entire, you know, diagnosis, something wrong with the entire treatment rather than a kind of failure to identify how your particular problems should be treated. That's a failure on our part, a failure on the part of science that we need to be working to fix, not a failure on the part of individuals. So I hope my book gets across myriad routes, all the many different paths you might take to improve your mental health, whether that is changing something about your body, enhancing your expectations because of the sort of power of the placebo effect, psychedelic drugs. In one of my chapters, I talk about how that might be an important path for some but not all patients and so on. So I I do hope that my, my book kind of opens up people's minds to the idea that there are these many different routes and they're not like dogmatic. You don't have to say, oh, well, I have a problem, a chemical problem in my brain, therefore only antidepressants would treat me. No, all these different strategies are all working on your brain and your body. They're all working on common systems. So I hope that's the message people take away. But I also reflect a lot on the fact that the message I'd like to give maybe one day in the future is actually... Here is an accessible thing that you can do that will help. Here is a way we can find the treatment that works for you and so on. But we're
0: still working on it. And to finish this interview, which has just been so fascinating, I'd love to know what excites you most about your current research and and the future of mental health care.
1: Well, at the moment, we're running a series of experiments on the overlap between metabolic and mental health. So it's a really important An unexplored mystery in mental health. There's a a big mortality gap. People die 15 to 20 years earlier when they have a major mental health condition. And a big proportion of that is actually because of physical health problems, especially cardio metabolic problems. Diabetes, for example, is more common in people with depression. But why? We don't actually understand fully all the various biological mechanisms that could cause increased risk of mental, poor mental and poor physical health. And we think there might be common factors in the body and the metabolism of the body that relate to mental and physical health. And so that's what one stream of work in my lab is doing right now, really kind of exploratory, what we call blue sky science. And then, so that's on the kind of discovery phase where we might find a kind of whole new set of factors that relate to people's mental health. But I'm also interested on the kind of treatment end of how we can improve what we currently do treatment wise. And there I, I'm most excited about my work in augmentation of therapies. Whether, you know, for example, I ran one study where we gave people a drug that changes something about the gut, something about the stomach. And that changed people's experience of disgust. So I'm interested in pursuing that pathway to treat people who have pathological experiences
0: of disgust because of various different psychiatric disorders. Gosh, Camilla, I could talk to you for hours, but I'm so grateful for the time that you've given us today. And I know that listeners are going to find this an absolutely intriguing episode. And thank you for all the work that you're doing. And congratulations on your book again. Thank you, Pandora. It's been great to chat. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healing 101. Just a reminder that if you're struggling or in need of someone to talk to, please remember to text SHOUT to 85258.